Welcome, everyone, to What They Aren't Telling You. This is going to be the first episode in a series uh, with nurses. And some of these interviews are going to be anonymous and some are not going to be anonymous. But this is going to be a discussion about what people in the medical industry, medical professionals have seen over the last year, year, a little year and a couple months, like what has really, really been going on inside hospitals and what do medical professionals think about it? Because a little over a year ago, I did a post asking for updates from nurses and it ended up being shared so many times because people wanted to know the truth. Now we were hearing on the media, hearing on the news, you know, these hospitals were overwhelmed. Everybody sort of assumed that what happened in New York was going to happen everywhere else. And then it didn't. And then you had nurses kind of speaking out saying, hey, our hospitals are empty, or this is not what we're seeing. And it kind of got pushed under the rug. And mainstream news never really covered it. So here we are a year later, a little over a year later. And what I really want to know is what did this year look like for nurses across the country? So I have a series of over a dozen interviews that I'll be doing. Um, And I hope you guys really appreciate being able to hear from people themselves and understanding each person's different experience in different parts of the country. And um, today we're going to start with our first one. Now, this is not going to be anonymous. Today's interview is going to be with Michelle Wooten, and she is 100% ready and open to talk about this and not stay silent anymore. She recently retired, so she has a little more flexibility to be open. And we're going to find out a little more from her today. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you. So let's start with the first question. And everyone's going to get this question. What is your background in medicine? How long have you been doing this? What area of the hospital do you work in? And uh, let's give a little bit of your medical background. Okay, sure. Um, So I have been a nurse for about 25 years. Most of my career has been spent in critical care nursing in community uh, nonprofit hospitals. The most recently for probably the past eight years, I've been actually in nursing education, got my master's degree in nursing education, did critical care education for a few years before I uh, transitioned into the role of director of professional development, which was overseeing nursing education for the whole hospital. Um, And that's where I spent the last five years of my career prior to retiring. Amazing. And so specifically relating to education, it's, you know, you probably have kind of an interesting ability to sort of know where policies and administration and things like that take over when, you know, things like this happen. Like, for example, in New York, when everybody was scrambling for ventilators and scrambling and that policy, it became a policy issue, administrative policy uh, in New York about how every patient or almost every patient gets um, intubated. And it became a policy they later regretted, obviously, and changed course from. But it was an administrative policy. This was done not so much on what the day in, day out doctors and nurses were seeing, but they basically created these blanket policies that um, just, you know, decided what action steps people took and, and ended up having disastrous results. So working in an administration and understanding the education part of it is kind of a different angle altogether. You know, there's a lot of politics involved in the hospital care system, um, which you probably got to see a little more than most. So my 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 first real question about the covid pandemic for you is this. Do you think in your medical opinion, your expertise, do you think the fear 
that was generated from this back in March 2020, April 2020 was warranted? You know, looking back on it, no, I don't think so. At the time, being in it, I worked in an inner city hospital in a very poor community in Massachusetts. I, I didn't I get caught up in it, I don't think, as much as most people did. I was in disbelief that it was all happening, to be honest with you. But I do appreciate the, the, the fear that the frontline workers experienced because it was new, it was unknown, and we did have a lot of patients that came in initially. Um, and we, we did mismanage those patients, absolutely, by intubating them too early. Um, we didn't have enough PPE. There was just so much unknown around it back then. Um, but we did learn relatively quickly. And unfortunately, I think once that train started rolling down the track, it was very difficult to, to change course. Meaning that the, the treatment that people had committed to at that point was hard to change and admit that we did this wrong. Yeah, exactly. I just think that, um, you know, you know, with the mask mandates and the social distancing and just all of the things that were put in place. I mean, the world was paralyzed. And I think it was very difficult from a hospital administration standpoint to do anything different than what was being, uh, you know, put on us by, you know, by the political agenda and all of that. Every, you know, every hospital was kind of operating the same way and nobody was willing to take a stand or do anything different than what the rest of the country was doing or the rest of the world. Uh, for that matter. But, you know, in terms of the fear, I do appreciate the fear of the frontline workers. They were they were terrified um, because these patients were uh, they were coming in in droves initially, but it was very short lived, all of that. Um, and once I think we started determining how to basically treat these people appropriately, you know, it was over relatively quickly. You know, that that mass, you know, influx of patients that came in that that were intubated. We opened up a second ICU. We turned our recovery room, you know, into another ICU to be able to accommodate those patients. We, we shut off all our elective surgeries in order to be able to accommodate the patients that we assumed were going to take over the hospital. And I'm not going to say that we didn't have a lot of patients that were incredibly sick during that period of time. Mm -hmm. um, but it, again, it was short-lived. And I think that when we all got ready for like the next wave, because, you know, last summer it wasn't, it wasn't that bad at all. We all got sec you know, ready for the second wave. The second wave really never came. And did you, um, did you guys think that what you saw on the TV for New York and Italy, did you think that that was going to start happening everywhere? Yes, I definitely think that everybody thought that that would happen in every hospital. I think everybody braced themselves. Um, you know, same thing, like you were talking about all the ventilators that they got to New York. We had an extra hundred ventilators that came into our hospital, most of which went unused. Right. Um, they just, you know, because it just never happened the way they all thought it was going to happen. And do you think, looking back now, that there were people, whether in your state or others, that unnecessarily lost their lives due to medical mismanagement with all of this? That's probably true, but I don't think that it was intentional by any means. I think that everybody did what they thought was right at the time. Sure. in terms of intubating patients early and all of that. Um, and I think later on, you know, they realized that that wasn't the right way to go. And, you know, I do appreciate some of the intensivists that I worked with at, at the hospital I worked at, you know, because they did realize that there was a different avenue to go to mm -hmm. actually help these patients. And so they stopped intubating them early and they really kind of figured out how to manage it. And as a result, we never had to open up another ICU. We closed down that first one. And it's not to say that nobody needs to be intubated, but certainly not what we were doing in the beginning. 
And did the hospital administration listen to the doctors and nurses that had concerns that this was the avenue of treatment? Yes, they. I have to give them credit for that. They did. That's good, because I've definitely heard in lots of places that wasn't the case. And sometimes, like I said, sometimes the political atmosphere basically overtook, you know, like the medical consensus at that point, which was there were people, you know, in lots of different states all kind of at the same time saying, hey, this isn't the right way to treat it. But then a lot of their voices got silenced and some of them, you know, ended up uh, quitting because they could not continue working like that. Do you think... um, Like, have you witnessed um, during this process, it sounds like your hospital administration was, like I said, very open, but have you witnessed any dishonesty as it relates to, uh, you know, what COVID treatments were or reporting of COVID deaths or anything that made you kind of question the way things were being done? I mean, I have to say that I did feel that some of the reporting in terms of the COVID deaths or COVID related deaths because of the reimbursement structure that was put in place. Right. I think that that may have led to, you know, some, I don't want to say that it was like overt dishonesty because I think that, you know, they were doing whatever they could to keep afloat and the government was promising all of this funding and, you know, all of this. So we had to do what we had to do in order to stay afloat as a community hospital in a very poor community. Um, But, you know, I, I do, I do wonder. I mean, not that I had any firsthand knowledge of it, but I certainly did wonder. Being incentivized to kind of record things that way was a business like necessity, basically, like you're saying, to be able to keep the hospital afloat and open. Um, but but that could have been a matter of not being completely truthful or accurate as it related to the cause of death. Because the thing is, is at that time, the numbers were everything, right? It was all about the numbers of deaths. So if there are people who are not really dying of COVID, but being marked at COVID deaths, then these numbers are inflated. And when the numbers are inflated, that's actually driving policy. So that actually, you know, was was the driving factor in shutting things down, keeping things locked down longer, eventually leading to mask, more mask mandates and longer mask mandates. All of these things came down to numbers. And, you know, that's the, the, you know, most important part of this is accuracy of numbers. So not only do we have issues with the testing and the testing not necessarily, you know, showing up accurately with all the false positives, but then we have the reporting of deaths being potentially inflated all across the country. And then that becoming the statistics or the data that they use from that point on to basically affect the lives of every American citizen. And I think all of us kind of wondered that. Were you guys in the, within the hospital setting ever having these discussions? You know, I wasn't involved with those discussions, but I absolutely know what you're talking about because, it, you know, it just seems like anybody that died with a positive COVID result died of COVID. Didn't matter what you came in with. If you died and you had COVID, that that's what it ended up being. Um, and, you know, I remember when the CDC, you know, corrected their numbers to say that it was really like whatever, 6% or something. Right. That was only COVID. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's like, are you dying with COVID or are you dying of COVID? Right. You know what I mean? And so the people actually dying of COVID was very, very low in comparison to what they were initially saying. Now, were you having these discussions with friends and family members during this whole thing? Because I'm sure people were coming to you. They're asking you, hey, you're in this. You've seen this. You know people in this. What is everybody saying? They're probably coming to you to verify. Were other people around you questioning what was going on? Yes, absolutely. And what did those conversations look like? 
you know, I just, I think that when the, when people started kind of freaking out about the numbers and, you know, oh my gosh, like 200,000 people at this point. And, and I'm thinking, you know, here I am trying to correct people like, wait a minute, you know, you got to back up a little bit and realize that people, there are those two different categories, dying with versus dying of. And, you know, yes, COVID may have hastened some people's deaths that were, you know, morbidly obese or that had other coexisting conditions, um, you know, that may have, that COVID may have exacerbated all of that to hasten their death. Um, but, it, you know, it wasn't COVID in and of itself. The flu could have done the same thing right. for some of those patients that were already in poor health. Right. So I was trying to, you know, settle people down to make them realize because people were paralyzed and still are paralyzed by fear. Mm -hmm. You cannot turn that around in some people. And it's, it's really, it's awful, actually. Now, did they listen to you or did they not really listen to you? And in which case would you say, hey, I've been doing this for X number of years, like I'm somebody that would know, because um, I've noticed a lot of, you know, doctors and nurses speaking out against this instantly are dismissed, um, because you're called a conspiracy theorist, even if you have the same level of medical background and the years of experience, uh, nobody wants to really accept that point of view, that medical point of view. Did you have that experience? Definitely. Within the hospital, um, nobody wanted to talk about that at all. Like they just wanted to kind of stay on the, the road that they were on. They didn't want to have any of those discussions outside of the hospital, friends and family. You know, it seemed like people had their mind made up. I mean, people were just listening to what Fauci was telling them. And that was it. He was, you know, the be all and end all. And whatever he said was what we had to do. And, th and these are even some of my nursing friends, to be honest with you. It it's still mind blowing to me. Um, you know, that it, I, you know, I hate to say this because I don't want to offend people, but it just seems like common sense is just not a factor in any of this. Your coworkers and your colleagues, did you feel like they were abandoning that logical approach to medicine, even the logical approach to understanding germs and how they work um, during this whole thing, and, and probably based on this like continuous cycle of media fear. But did you see your own colleagues like buying into it? I did. And part of it, I don't know if it's because they were afraid to say anything, or if they really truly believed it. And every once in a while, when I would test the waters to kind of say something, the, the horror, like one day when I said about, uh, one day I made a comment about the masks, you know, like how ridiculous the masks were. And they were like, oh my gosh, how can you say such a thing? You know? And I was just like, really? Like I was in shock that I was the only one that, and that's when I realized like, wow, I really am on an island by myself. Um, you know, it's, I'm not going to be able to stand up against this, you know, at all because I'm, I'm there's so few of me uh, in the, in the environment. And were you guys kind of told to keep disagreeing opinions to yourselves? Like, was that kind of sort of like a, a known thing, either directly or indirectly, not to speak out against any of these policies? I don't know if I was told that directly, but you could get definitely get the sense. This is what we were doing. You know, we have to be aligned. And this is, you know, the direction we're going, that we are the administration. And so, you know, we have to set the example, set the policy, and then enforce it. And then all of a sudden, the vaccine becomes available. And uh, people are leading up to this point where the vaccine is going to be the savior of all things. Um, and it comes out. Uh, leading up to the vaccine's rollout, was there pressure for every one of you guys to be getting it? Oh, like unbelievable pressure. And I'm one of the few people that didn't get it. And it was, I remember getting an email uh, from my boss's secretary that said, you know, oh, we just want to, we're trying to plan accordingly. Uh, so let me know how many people on your team 
you know, are going to get it. And so I had to, you know, pull my team now at this point. And, and I was, I didn't pull any punches with my team. I told them how I felt about it, but that I totally respected everybody's decision and, you know, whatever, um, and gave the numbers back. And then, you know, they kind of questioned, well, geez, you know, you're, you're saying only 10 people, but there's 11. And I'm like, yeah, I'm declining, you know? So, and it was, you know, like, again, it's met with horror. Like, what do you mean you're declining? You know, what are you crazy? What were your reasons for declining? Like in your mind, what was the reason you were not going to get it? I mean, you're a medical professional. You should be the first one to understand how vaccines work all of the time and they're safe and effective for everyone. So why would you decline? For me, I felt like the tech mRNA technology was, was rather new. I thought the clinical trials were very small. The number of folks, I mean, I think Pfizer had like 40,000 and um, Moderna had like 30,000, but only 15,000 actually got it. You know what I mean? It's 50, 50. Right. Something. And like, that's a really small number. I mean, most medications go through a lot more rigorous trials than that um, over the peer, over the course of time, just to kind of see how things were going. Um, so that was one thing that I just was a little bit just hesitant about. I also believe that I have a pretty intact immune system. Um, and the way that this whole technology is with the mRNA, it's, it doesn't elicit an immune response the way typical vaccines do, where they give you an attenuated version of the of the the virus so that your body can develop its own antibodies to it. So that just felt a little off to me. Um, and then I started hearing some of the issues with like, you know, child women of childbearing age, because the S protein is very in the placenta is very similar to the S protein on the coronavirus and that, you know, the vaccine potentially could, um, you know, view the placenta as, as the coronavirus and, and kind of act as an auto, you know, create like an autoimmune type response. Right. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but those are things that I felt were valid questions. Um, and if, you know, those questions weren't able to be answered yet, then I'm not ready to give myself something that you can't take back. Once you inject that into your body, you can't get it back. And I just felt like, you know what, we're in the middle of the biggest clinical trial in the history of the world right. because hundreds of millions of people are going to be getting this right. blindly. Right. And I'm, my mind is still blown that people are just like lining up for this without much information. And so I just figured, you know what, let me wait a year and see what happens or longer than that, or maybe never get it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means, but I'm also, um, you know, I'm about natural remedies as much as possible. Um, I trust my body the way it was designed to work. And I also don't think the coronavirus is, you know, that deadly. Right. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's 99.5% of the people, you know, you know, survivable for crying out loud. Uh, why would I ever sign up for this vaccine? And now they're already talking about a booster. And Yeah, so you believe in selective medicine. I mean, the way that it really should be. It should be customizable. It should be individualized. It shouldn't be everything that exists just because it exists. It should be whatever you actually need based on the person. That seems actually very reasonable. But for whatever reason, in today's time, you're not really allowed to question the medical establishment and if it's there everyone's supposed to do it and nothing works unless everybody does it which is just you know a ridiculous business model but um the fact that they wanted people that already had the, the virus to get the vaccine and i'm thinking like okay what's what's the deal with that that seems ridiculous to mm -hmm. me and then there you know the whole thing is that supposedly your body doesn't maintain the antibodies and but it also might not maintain the antibodies with the vaccine well, obviously. so all of that you know that's like ridiculous to me that and then of course, then you can still spread the virus. You still need to wear a mask. And I'm just thinking, like, what what is happening to the world that we think that this is the be-all and end-all when nothing is changing? And I've been hearing also reports that hospitals have become busier since the COVID vaccine rollout um, because a lot of people are coming in with variety of different conditions post having the vaccine. Have you heard anything about hospitals being busier now? 
I think that they're starting to open up more services, which has maybe made them more busy. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny when you talk about how busy the hospital is, um, you know, and, and back way back when we started with the lockdowns, um, I can't tell you how like dead the emergency department was every single day. Um, it was just, you know, the hospital has been really, you know, on a down slope, I guess, ever since this happened. And we have never, our numbers have never really recovered, mm-hmm. um, you know, since the, since COVID started. And that leads to the, you know, to an additional question that people would ask of all the people that postponed their, you know, other types of medical treatment because they were afraid to be there, um, that were hurt, harmed, and possibly died as a result of not getting that treatment. You know, those are also casualties. And those are people who are caught up in this false fear or the over pushing of the fear that kept regular medical procedures from happening that were necessary too. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that that was horrifying people that had to put treatments off for cancer, different things. I mean, people that were putting off their mammograms, I'm a breast cancer survivor, by the way. And, you know, I just can't imagine if I couldn't go in for my, my routine mammogram just to, you know, just to have my follow up. Um, you know, it was just, you know, the other piece to the whole thing, the other casualty that I'd like to mention is that in the emergency department, where most things were way down, our behavioral health population was way up. I cannot tell you how many people were in with substance abuse disorders, depression, anxiety, you know, just because of all of the lockdowns and the fear that the, that gripped the world. I mean, I think the, the, the masks, just everything was really kicked up all of the behavioral health population that really needed services and couldn't get them. They couldn't go to their meetings. They couldn't see their counselors. Everything had to be done via Zoom. You know, people that just need to interact and connect with people weren't able to do that. The right. isolation. And was that talked about amongst you guys? I mean, was that a discussion about we've got a problem here and we're going to have to deal with this? Or was this another thing that was sort of just kind of pushed to the side? I think they talked about it to acknowledge it. But and they, you know, they talked about how how do we manage these patients? Where do we put them? Because all of the behavioral health facilities were full. So there was just no place. Counselors were full. There was no place for these patients. And they were staying in the emergency department. So, of course, that was a huge burden. Um, So, yes, we talked about it. But um, you know, there wasn't really no resolution that that came. And the media certainly wasn't talking about it nearly enough when you look at the coverage. Um, so what would you say then, Michelle, if you're looking back over this last year, what was probably the one or two most, you know, important or pivotal lessons that you kind of learned dealing with a huge health pandemic um, that became global and you were still tied into the medical world, what lessons do you think you learned or what what pieces of information really came to the forefront for you over this last year? I think I mentioned to you in, in, uh, when we were texting that, you know, I was in charge of PPE um, and kind of setting, I, I had to lead a committee of people that came together to determine uh, how we were going to u- utilize PPE, you know, what parameters we were going to put in place. And of course, I was very conflicted about it all because I, you know, I just felt very differently about COVID um, than most people. But of course, I, as in my position, I had to manage that. Um, and that became such a huge issue with the staff that were paralyzed by fear because the PPE was at a premium. You know, early on, we didn't have enough of it. Just the, the, that whole contamination aspect. And again, where I just wanted people to logically think about, about this. 
and I, you couldn't get people to, you, you wanted to take them by the shoulders and shake them, you know, because everybody was just completely panicked by the whole thing. I just wish that we could have come together again from that more logical common sense perspective to kind of discuss it as a healthcare team about how to manage this and how to manage our own fears. And, uh, but you, ju you just couldn't, you just couldn't uh, get people to even consider anything else. And it was because of all of that. And the media did play up, you know, about the lack of PPE and it was very difficult to procure it. Um, but I just think that the media played a huge role in keeping everybody, including healthcare people. And, and, and still to this day, I think that that's going on. And so what, what advice would you give to some American out there who is afraid to still leave their house uh, and feels like if they see somebody without a mask, that person's being irresponsible and that we've just had the deadliest pandemic of our lifetime and uh, it's not really safe to be out there in the world. What advice would you give to somebody who's still in that frame of mind as somebody with a medical background? What would you want to tell them? It's very difficult because I, I try to have these conversations with people, but they just can't hear it. They can't get past it. People even that have had their two vaccines that's, you know, still wearing their mask that want to get together, but stay six feet apart. And I try to tell them that I'm just not really interested in that, that I don't believe in that, that I do believe that our immune systems, you know, are designed to protect us against these type of viruses, that this is a, another coronavirus. There's many of them out there. Um, you know, our bodies have learned to adapt. Um, it's always survival of the fittest. So again, with coronavirus, it's something that's going to continue to evolve. We're never going to be able to keep up with it with vaccines, you know, as the, the different variants are out there. Um, and so, you know, we just have to, we have to trust our bodies the way they were designed and realize that, you know, it's, it's hand washing. Um, you know, if you're sick, then yeah, don't go out. That's okay. But it's the, it's, it's the most mind boggling thing that we have quarantined the healthy, that we have healthy people out there wearing masks. Um, you know, I agree that there's people that are compromised, that, you know, that those people do need to protect themselves. People that, you know, are in the middle of chemotherapy treatment or that have other immunological, uh, you know, situations that put them at risk. Um, but they have to protect themselves. And there are ways to protect yourself. The gold standard is the N95 mask. If you're someone that's at risk, that's what you should be wearing if you need to go out in public to protect yourself. But these surgical masks are doing nothing uh, with the rest of us that are healthy uh, to protect. I mean, it's so ridiculous when you think about going into a restaurant and that you have to wear your mask to go from the door to your table. But the minute you sit down, you can take your mask off. You know, it's just some of these things I just wish that people would, again, from a common sense perspective, take a look at to decide, you know, does this make sense? You know, what, you know, what's being touted out there? COVID is... I don't want to say that it's the flu because it's it's not. It's a different virus, obviously, than the flu. But you know what? The flu has been around. Forty to 60,000 people die annually from the flu. We've never had these conversations and we've never had these lockdowns when it comes to this type of thing. This is another airborne virus where, yes, people are going to succumb to this the same way that they would succumb to the flu or anything else that might put them at risk if they're somebody that's in that population of patients, you know, that are not going to respond appropriately or that are, you know, that are at risk, I guess, from getting really sick. But I just think that we've gone so overboard with it. I, I just, I'm still in disbelief that the whole world became paralyzed by this. Yeah, I think many of us are. And uh, you said 
that you're looking to continue having this conversation on your social media and whatnot. And if anybody wants to continue following you to see what kind of things you're posting and information that you're giving coming from your background, uh, where would they go on social media? Oh, well, I have a Facebook page, my, my regular Facebook page, uh, Michelle Gordon Wooten. It's uh, Michelle with one L, Gordon, G-O-R-D-O-N, Wooten, W-O-O-N-T-O-N. I'm also on Instagram. Um, I haven't been heavily, you know, marketing myself out there as someone that's, a, you know, an, an advocate against masks and lockdowns and social distancing and vaccines. Um, but I am going to start putting out information. What I want to put out is information from, you know, even this, Melissa, I hate to say, you know, I hate to say that I'm, I'm questioning everything, but I, but I truly am questioning everything when it comes to like the science. Um, and I'm wondering to myself sometimes, can we even trust the science that's been presented? Right. Can we trust the information that's being put out in some of these journals? Because I want to put it out there, but if it's being manipulated, you know, to keep this, this agenda going and this, or this narrative going, right. you know, then can can we trust it? Can I be putting it out there? So, I mean, I'm trying to find the best resources and I appreciate people like you and others, you know, that are advocates, um, you know, for getting the right information out to people. But when I do put articles out or post different things, I do get some backlash with people being like, you know, oh, you know, whatever, just questioning, you know, the validity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, th- but they won't question the validity if it comes from like JAMA or New England Journal of Medicine or, you know, they won't question that. But then, but they'll question other things, you know, um, even if it's been a randomized controlled trial, right? Um, you know, it's just, it's kind of crazy. So, you know, I just want to try to get information out there so that people can consider it um, and make up their own mind about it instead of just being led down the road that the government wants us to go. And that's where I feel we're being pushed. And this is coming from a medical professional with a background for decades of working in that particular industry. See, a lot of people will criticize somebody who is not a doctor, not a medical professional or a healthcare worker, as if there's no validity to wondering what's really going on. But even within the medical community, there have been a lot of people raising dissent and questions. And again, it's not about what side you believe. It's just about the fact that you want to question, you know, whether or not this is logical, whether or not this makes sense whether or not we're responding appropriately to what's to the actual gravity of the situation, um, whether or not there's some other motives behind the scenes here. I mean, these are things everybody should be asking and we shouldn't be afraid to have the conversations and you as a healthcare worker should not be afraid to have those discussions, whether they're with your colleagues or your family or friends. This should be an open discussion and um, that's part of the reason why I want to bring this series kind of to life and um, I appreciate you being willing to chat with me as a stranger of sorts um, and just kind of discuss some of these things. So that was great and thank you for that and stay tuned for more interviews in this series and we'll kind of get an idea of what other nurses across the country are experiencing and have experienced during 2020 and the beginning here of 2021 with the COVID pandemic. 